0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from CollegeHumor.com, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, the Young Turks, the Atlantic, the Black Agenda Report, the David Pakman Show, This Week in Blackness, Rashid Shabazz, the Tom Hartman Program, and Professor Trisha Rose there's a black entertainment network, should there be a white entertainment network?
1: Do you say sort of racist stuff, but stop short of saying the N-word? Enjoy the refreshing taste of diet racism. The same sweet ignorance of regular racism, but with none of the guilt or self-awareness.
2: You know I'm not racist, but I would never date an Asian guy.
1: Okay. Diet racism. Because you're afraid of blacks and Latinos, but you'd never say that out loud. It's the perfect beverage for people who don't directly contribute to oppression, but have strong opinions about how other cultures should handle it. Stopping fresh shouldn't be a problem if you got nothing to hide. For that busy, on-the-go professional who doesn't have the strength to admit he's been given at least a slight advantage by being born white. The Irish were persecuted too, you know. For the stay-at-home mom who hates affirmative action because she doesn't remember that black kids had to be escorted to school by the army. My
3: kids would have a way easier time getting into college if they were minorities.
1: <laughs> Diet racism. Because you just don't get it. The official beverage of the Washington Redskins. Princess up.
4: Princess up. Princess up. I really love this country.
5: To
6: it hurts me to see so much
5: and there has been this lingering
7: controversy in the NFL over the name of the Washington football team, the Redskins. And, Ralph, you think that controversy is uh, moving into the absurd.
8: Yes, it's, a, it's an example of how there occurs a frenzy over words and, and ignoring the deeds that give rise to to the meaning of the words. And so the plight of first Native Americans, which we used to call American Indians, the tribes from coast to coast, is still pretty serious. Yeah, They have gambling casinos on some. Some Native Americans have done well. But when you talk about education, health, immense poverty on the Sioux Reservation, for example, in the Dakotas, Navajo Reservations in the Southwest and many other smaller ones, it's a terrible scene. The Reservations are often used as dumping grounds for toxic waste, gambling casinos, deadly uranium mining, where a lot of Native Americans workers in uranium mines have died. It's a very bad situation. They get very little coverage nationally. Very little coverage. Suddenly, the Redskins controversy explodes. Most of the tribes could have cared less. There are several tribes, including Oneanda, that sincerely felt insulted. And so they started saying to Dan Snyder, the owner of the Redskins, change the name. And he resisted. And so, the press jumped on it. It's an easy story. And more columnists, more editorials, more articles. I've never seen anything like it. I can say almost without qualification, Stephen David, that if you took all the national articles on the terrible injustices, the abuses, the rampant alcoholism, the violence, the despair, the oppression, the exploitation, all the historical slam that's coming in on these reservations. It doesn't go away. And if you add it up all the articles in the last 20 years, they do not match the number of articles in the last year on changing the Washington Redskins name. This is insane. I have gotten to call some of these columnists and these writers and say, look, You've written seven columns on this, or you've written three articles on this. Why don't you just go out to the reservations and just write one column, one right article. Why don't you see how they live, the poverty in the Sioux Reservation, how some people there wanted to start... An industrial hemp industry because they they are the sovereign nations, you know. So it's illegal to grow this two thousand year old crop that Jefferson and Washington grew on their plantations. Five thousand uses throughout history. It is not marijuana. You can't get high on it. But the the, the feds have put it on the prescribed list. Although it's moving. Now, I think, toward being legalized. It's legal to import industrial hemp from Canada, Romania, China, but not legal for our farmers to grow it. So you had these farmers who wanted to plant it in the Sioux Reservation to create value-added crops from it and to make a living, to alleviate some of the poverty. And about 14 years ago, one dawn. One of the farmers woke up to the sound, literally, of black helicopters, and the feds, the DEA came in, politely said, get out of our way, and he ripped up all the plants and plowed it over. So why don't you go out there? Those people are really upset in urban America about the Redskins' name. Why don't you go, go out there? I mean, when I first broached this to my presidential, vice-presidential mate, Winona LeDuc, who ran on my ticket in 2000, she really hardly was upset about it. She said, look, I'm worried about recovering our land. I'm worried about keeping our reservations intact, our culture intact, our economy growing with wind power and and other crops, and nobody can question her credentials. When I was out of Princeton, I went around the Indian reservations. In the West, from the Southwest all the way to California, all the way to the Crow, Blackfeet, reservations in Montana. And I was stunned. Absolutely stunned. I could not believe what the white invaders, some 1620 on, did to these people. Genocide, segregation, brutalization, slavery, you name it. And I wrote a long article for, I was at the Harvard Law Law School at the time, for the Harvard Law School record, which went out to thousands of alumni, and it was titled, American Indians, People Without a Future. And the Indian Health Service in Washington, which has responsibility for Indian health on the reservation, have reprinted thousands thousands of copies. So I'm no stranger to the problems of first Native Americans and so I think while everybody has their sensitivities and we have to respect them and everybody can be appalled by racist language we have to put it in perspective and if you get a flare over the words and you see it everywhere every day words, bad words lead to resignations, bad deeds you get promoted, you get rich on Wall Street so if we're going to allow space for criticizing spiteful racist homophobic sexist words let's at least take a pause and say what are the conditions that led to those words being used and those words being spiteful privilege and guilt is what
1: brought me
9: Here we go again. Arizona in the news. Uh, There's a charter school there called Heritage Academy. And they've been using some questionable books by a guy named Cleon Skousen. They say he's a controversial anti-communist. Now, (laughs) I got news for you. Being anti-communist these days is not that controversial. He's controversial for other reasons. Two of the books that they are assigning to kids as textbooks are called The 5,000-Year Leap and the making of America. Okay. Now, there's a couple problems with these books, uh, first of which is that uh, they push out the idea of a Christian nation. And, in fact, they've been sued by the Americans United um, for a separation of uh, church and state uh, for using these pe- uh, te- textbooks. And a person from that organization says, "Push. they push Christian nation propaganda and other religious teachings... On impressionable young students. Uh, Another problem with the books is that they're basically textbooks for the Tea Party as well. Uh, Glenn Beck uh, touted the 5,000-year leap, according to Raw Story, is a divinely inspired interpretation of early American history. Now, I love that because I'm pretty sure that history isn't supposed to be divinely inspired. See, you might be mixing up your topics there when you talk about that. California-based National Tea Party Federation spokesperson says, the 5,000-year leap is a handbook of Tea Party ideals. Early on in the movement, people would carry it around and talk about it. So now they're teaching that to the kids in Arizona as if it's the gospel, as if it's actually true, this rewriting of history. All right, now, so there's the issue of religion intermingling there. This guy is clearly, you know, rabid right-winger, and he's biased some of the parts of the book. Where's the racism? Well, (laughs) you're about to see it, and I think anybody that isn't named Anthony Acumia could see this. Okay, so, uh, Garrett Epps explains that there's a long description of slavery in the book, um, that the state of slavery was beneficial to African Americans, and that southern racism was caused by the intrusion of northern abolitionists and advocates of equality... For the freed slaves. Hmm. And uh, he uh, quotes at length from an essay from Fred Albert Shannon who makes that point. Okay. Um, Let's think this through. The Southerners were not racist, even though they had slavery, until the abolitionists from the North came in and complained about slavery, and that turned the Southerners into (coughs) racists. If it wasn't for that, the Northerners complaining about slavery, the Southerners would have never been racist in the first place. This isn't a textbook for kids. I, look, I, <laughs> I don't understand how anybody could read that and be like, nailed it. Okay? He's not done yet. In the Manium of America, Skousen included an essay by Fred Albert Shannon in which he argued that if black children ran naked, it was generally from choice... And when the white boys had to put on shoes and go away to school, they were likely to envy the freedom of their colored playmates. That's in the frickin' textbook. So, this is literally the ministry of truth. Freedom is slavery. No, 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 the slaves were freer than the white kids. Because by denying them an education... We allowed them to run in the fields while they were picking our cotton for us and having to be our slaves, but they didn't have to wear shoes. You see, slavery is freedom. Freedom is slavery. We already told you as conservatives that war is peace, right? We already told you that ignorance is strength. Let's teach that ignorance at uh, an amped-up level.
1: double thing, double thing, ignorance is strength.
0: The following short documentary has visual elements. Some text appears on the screen that I'll be narrating.
5: The question of housing is one of the major problems this country faces. By and large, Blacks live in substandard housing. Those who manage to fight their way out of it frequently pay a large penalty to do so.
0: Between 1940 and 1970, a mass migration brought hundreds of thousands of Southern Blacks to Chicago. Many settled in North Lawndale, a middle-class neighborhood on Chicago's west side.
10: I came from Birmingham, Alabama, but I came to Chicago for a better living and a job. I bought here, this house, in 58. It ain't nothing to brag about, but it's mine.
11: My name's Clyde Ross, I was born in uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi. I bought this house in 1958.
12: I moved in this house in 1957. It was mostly a white area. And when they said that the the niggers was coming, they didn't say black. They said the niggers was coming. And uh, they start just start moving away.
0: Federal policies known as redlining prevented Black families from getting real mortgages. Blacks were forced to buy houses on contract from real estate speculators. The contracts were a scam. Mostly everyone
12: that was Black, they had been sold a contract. If you missed a payment in three months they could take the property back. No lawyer, no nothing could help you. That was it.
5: There are blocks like this scattered throughout the Lawndale section of Chicago's West Side Ghetto. The people who live here bought their homes from real estate speculators that double or triple their value, and they bought on contract because they couldn't get conventional or FHA mortgages. Under the contract, the buyer makes installment payments at high interest, but he builds no equity. If he defaults on even one payment at any time during the contract, he loses the property and everything
11: he's paid into it. We'll pay twenty six thousand and the house is worth twelve thousand. That means I was overcharged quite a bit. And the contract situation was so bad until uh well there was something broke down you had to fix it. Uh you had to pay water and gas and electric and the taxes and everything else. But you didn't had an ownership.
12: How could we be charged like that if that wasn't a law? And how would they, the law let them do this? But they said it was their property. They had a choice to sell it at whatever price they wanted to. And if you bought it, then that was on you. Worked three dollars. <laughs>
11: I worked at the council, post office, and the delivered pieces for four to five years. I get home at 10 o'clock every night, you know, leave home every, at 6 o'clock every morning. Kids be sleep; they don't see me. And when they did see me on the weekends, I tell them something, look at, they look at their mama and say, well, should I do it or should I not do it with this guy, you know? I was a stranger in my own home because of this contract thing, really a stranger. I said, this is not going to work. These people who have cheated us out of more than money, we have been cheated out of the right to be human beings in a society. We have been cheated out of buying homes at a decent price. Now it's time now. we got a chance now. The Contract buyers' League have presented a chance for these people in this area to move out of this grip of society, to move up. Stand on your own two feet. Be human beings. Fight for what you know is right. Fight! In
4: 1968,
0: North Lawndale's residents began to fight back with the help of a young community organizer, a Jesuit named Jack McNamara.
5: I really believe that, you know, ultimately what we're after is some kind of communication among human beings, but that can only be affected when people can approach each other on the basis of equality. Yeah, but even though you are keeping within the law, this is really war, isn't it? Uh, Yes, it is.
13: The college students and I went up and down the streets and asked people if they bought on contract, and we discovered that the average overcharge was $10,000, and then computed the monthly payments so that we knew that black folks were paying a race tax of about $20,000 per family.
10: You would just go to their house and ask them, is you on a contract? Some of them say, I don't know, and some of them didn't want to talk to you. And they, they would say, no, I'm on a mortgage. But when they bring the paper, I know it wasn't on a mortgage, because that's what I had a piece of paper. Everybody practically was on contract.
13: People on the west side and the south side were being blamed for things that were not of their own making. This is the best example I can think of of institutional racism white folks created the ghetto and it drives me crazy today even that we don't admit that
5: the people of Lawndale organized the contract buyers league and during the past year the league began urging large numbers of buyers to withhold the payments on their contracts by withholding the payments the league has managed to renegotiate enabling the buyer to build equity and saving him an average of ten thousand dollars
13: there were 550 families in the payment strike. People knew how to handle pickets. People knew how to handle you them their neighbors. But when you're hitting them in the pocketbook with a payment strike, that was serious business.
11: They said, well, you got to pay this money at $2.60 every month. No, we ain't paying you nothing until you get this contract right.
5: They came up. Rang the bell, still in bed, and the wife went to the door. And they served her with a paper, and then they came on in. What did they say to you? They said they were going to Victor's. And how your, where's your furniture now? Out on the street. What do you plan to do? Do you believe that you should forward it and pay it like you were doing before? No, I won't. I won't give them the money.
11: We just wanted to get a fair price for the house, you know, and we wanted the mortgage where we could have Ownership of the house, and the contract violence brought us to a point where we could understand that uh, we could do something about this.
5: The peoples of CBL have come together. No matter what happened, we are fighting for one thing—that is justice. And believe me, as long as we stick together and keep growing in large numbers like we've done now, something got to help us.
0: After a year-long struggle, the payment strike came to an end. Maddie Lewis, Ethel Weatherspoon, and Clyde Ross renegotiated and gained ownership of their homes.
10: I've always wanted to own my own house because I worked for white people when I was in the South, and they had beautiful homes, and I always said one day I was going to have me one. And I finally did. The
12: house was paid for. No more fright of losing it. It felt good. It really felt good.
0: You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com.
4: Back in the 60s, sociologists began to use the term tipping point to describe white response to the entrance of blacks into formerly white neighborhoods. The raw statistics showed clearly that such tipping points existed, although sociologists argued about the dynamics of precisely when white exits turned into sudden wholesale flight. Certainly, real estate agents and developers understood the phenomenon, having set it in motion in city after city in the 40s and 50s in order to make a killing in the market. So-called blockbusters played on racist hysteria, buying up white properties at rock bottom and selling them at inflated prices to blacks, desperate to escape densely packed ghettos. The churning of neighborhoods generated billions in profits and changed the face of America in a remarkably short period of time. Ultimately, whites' refusal to share urban space with blacks created an American racial and economic geography unique in the world, in which the black and brown poor resided in hollowed-out, shrunken, capital-deprived central cities surrounded by a belt of suburban white wealth, the exact opposite of the historical world model of urban development. America, which invented modern white racism through the establishment of black chattel slavery, had once again been reshaped through the socio-economic dynamics of white racism. For more than half a century, racial tipping points referred primarily to the behavior of white people, a predictor of white flight creating new spaces for black habitation in the cities. But Racism is irrational, as were the socioeconomic landscapes created by white racism, with whites traveling ridiculous distances to find racially exclusive environments at affordable prices. The corporate class longs for the centralized amenities that only big cities can provide. And finance capitalists look forward to trillions in added values if only blacks and browns could be evicted from urban real estate. Finance capital, corporate muscle, and the political parties that serve them have set in motion the new phenomenon of black flight from the cities and white return. Unlike white flight of the previous era, the current black exodus is mainly involuntary and economic. In reality, it is more like a purge, an ethnic cleansing, based on the reality that, in a racist society, the very presence of substantial numbers of black people brings down the value of land and other assets. Today, the question in city after city is, what is the tipping point for maintaining black populations? How many upscale, mostly white people does it take to make a neighborhood and ultimately whole cities like San Francisco unaffordable and downright hostile to black habitation? In Harlem and elsewhere in New York City, the tipping point has clearly been passed, as it has in Washington, D.C., and will soon occur in Atlanta. Blacks are under siege, up against the tipping point in Chicago. Even in cities such as Baltimore, where black majorities make wholesale purges impractical for the moment, targeted black neighborhoods are rapidly tipping. Outrageously, the governor of Michigan proposes to bring in a steady stream of upscale immigrants to dilute the 82% black population of Detroit. And yet, there is nothing approaching a national black consensus on a response, which means the political tipping point may have already passed, and the purge of the cities will continue without effective black resistance. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford.
14: About a year ago, we did a story called Black Woman Pretends to be White and Job Offers Skyrocket. And it was a story about an African-American woman who uh, merely changed her name from one that sounded more stereotypically African-American to one that sounded more stereotypically white on her resume did not change anything about her qualifications, experience, education, etc. and the number of interviews and job offers that followed were significantly higher than what she was getting with her traditionally sounding black name. The same thing has now happened with a man named Jose Samora who changed one letter in his first name. He removed the S going from Jose to Joe and all of a sudden the number of callbacks and interviews that he was getting from his resume skyrocketed and this is yet again essentially the same story he did a a month-long job search he says he would log on to his computer every single morning look at the internet for job listings apply have his resume on as many of these job websites as possible sending out fifty to one hundred inquiries a day and was not getting any responses. So he said, let's just see what happens if instead of Jose, I become Joe Zamora, and all of a sudden he had a full inbox within a week. Again, remember, his qualifications didn't change, his education didn't change, his skills and employment background did not change. All that changed, Lewis was his name, and it is yet another one of these examples of we know about uh, equal Employment Opportunity Law, uh, uh, we know about job discrimination, we know about all that stuff. But there is something that is underlying that, which is at a much higher level of who even gets a phone interview before you even move to the next phase. And we've seen that moving away from a traditionally African-American name helped that woman a year ago. And now we see that Joe, or Jose as he's actually called, benefited from the same type of change it's uh it's kind of shocking to me just the number of um of
15: of applications he was filling out the number of resumes he was sending out yep. and getting almost no responses i mean i know there's a lot of xenophobia here in this country But this is still shocking to me, so I'm very curious to know where where he lived, where he's from.
14: Yeah, I don't have that information in front of me, and he may have been applying nationally. I mean, to be sending out 50 to 100 a day, you're either in one of the bigger metro areas where there are 50 to 100 new jobs each day that you can apply for, or you're kind of expanding your, your search geographically. And, Lewis, I was thinking that this is not really that new of a thing because there's a long history in this country of traditionally sounding Irish names Italian names and Jewish names being changed for for essentially the same purposes, right, to avoid being disqualified before you are even known as an individual to a potential employer. And uh, now it just doesn't happen to be those. It happens to be, uh, as we saw, the African-American names and here a Hispanic name.
15: Yeah, the bad guy's always changing. It just uh, depends on on what decade you're in, I guess. And now it's uh, it seems to be Hispanics because uh, they're they're taking our jobs, right?
14: Yeah, and it's amazing because I thought which jobs are Hispanics taking? Are they taking the jobs that are uh, the ones for undocumented immigrants working? Uh, you know, in in. Uh, domestic services and on farms etc or is it the types of jobs where resumes are reviewed and education is evaluated because i didn't think that it was both and as we're seeing here just the name change made a huge difference there
16: There's a new story written by, uh, in Mother Jones called The Science of Your Racist Brain. There's a neuroscientist who goes by the name of David, Amo- Amodio? David Amodio who has done a study on subconscious racial prejudice and why it is that we're still responsible for our racism. Um, as most people know, a lot of people when they talk about racism, they like to talk about outward, very tangible racist behaviors and actions. For example, you see a cross burning on a black person's lawn, you look at it, you say, that person who put that cross on that lawn is racist. But there are more implicit racial biases that affect the way that we interact with one another. And this 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 researcher, David Amodio, he's an expert on psychology, he did a study where he had um he had people fill out questionnaires and show them pictures. So they would show a picture of a white person and they would ask and they would um present the present the people who were the subject of this research this research with certain words like happy negative fear um other such words were peace Heaven, honor, cancer, vomit, poverty. And so when these words popped up and they the, the research found out that people were more inclined to associate positive words with white faces and negative words with black faces. So when shown a shown a word like cancer, vomit, or poverty, that word would be associated with a black person. When shown words like heaven, peace, and honor, that word would be associated with a white person.
17: I am shocked. Are you? This is, I cannot possibly imagine, uh, our society somehow being connecting racism, racism with, uh, and and these negativity, negative words with people of color, black faces. I mean, I mean, uh, I am, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know this. Next thing you're going to tell me that slavery was actually bad for the slaves. Like, I don't, this is, mind blown is what I'm saying, yeah. I, thought they, I thought that the war on
7: drugs was supposed to clean up all the problematic Negroes so we could clean up our image overall. What happened? What the hell remember that you started erasing all the, all, the, all the black people with the drugs,
17: all of them I mean, out of the inner cities?: First of all. First of all, again, you're, th- th- those are conspiracies about that. They weren't. They, that wasn't for that. The black people went and made their own drugs and decided that they, like, you know what? We don't want to actually be uh, members of society, so we let's go make our own drugs and then do them, so that then we can't have to go and do real work. Oh. You so you have to learn that. That's that's what actually happened. Always sure. remember that, Imani. You remember that? I I'll never forget it. Yeah, well, I mean, not to be funny, I'm not. I'm not. This is I, maybe maybe I'm a douche. I'm just not. This is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's about right. Yes, uh negative things. We we've known this. We've seen this with uh like with the dolls, with uh children. Like like literally it's instilled in children as children that black is bad and white is better and that uh when they uh see certain things the doll is or a black doll that's dirty and not and bad and doesn't isn't a good doll and the white doll is pretty and all those other things. It's yeah, this is the thing, but no one is going to ever like I don't believe there will ever be enough studies that will get people to accept the, I guess, subconscious uh, aspect of racism in our society, especially for the fact that once you accept that, you then have to then accept that you're – A part of the, a part of that problem. And that's, I believe, in the end, is the reason why we cannot, and we can never have a real conversation around race. It's not because people, uh, uh, won't believe that. It's that once they have to accept that they might have a role in that, it's like, nah, son. Nah, if it was just like, hey, you know, racism, all those other people over there are absolutely racist, but you are really good. They're like, thank you, man, we need to stop this racism. <laughs> racism is terrible. But as soon as you say, you know, you, you, you have a role within this race, We're like, listen, that's why racism is malarkey. <laughs> oh my I got that, Somehow I'm racist now. Like, you know, I'm not racist. I'm the, I have a love in my heart. And you can't, you can't call me a racist.
16: We can. Yeah, but what's actually really disturbing about the story? I mean, there were various different uh, research methods that that went into determining that racism is a thing and that people have implicit racist biases. But one of the one of the studies is actually really disturbing and shows that how racism might actually be like your white person, especially if you're a doctor, your racist biases might actually be killing black people, for example. Um. There was one study that was done in 2007 where 220 medical residents took an implicit association test in order to detect subtle racist bias. And they would also read the medical history of a particular patient, um, either a black patient or a white patient. Uh, That patient was experiencing chest pain. And whether or not... The the patient was black or white would actually determine what sort of life saving treatment that doctor would provide. So, if the white doctor knew that the patient was black and was suffering from chest pain, chest pains, they would be less likely to prescribe um, to to treat the black patient for thrombosis, which is apparently a heart disease. I'm not a doctor, so what do I know? But but the point is is that these doctors are less inclined to provide life saving treatments when they know that the patient is black, as opposed to when they know that the patient is white. So it seems to me that for all of, you know, the Supreme Court's talk of, oh, racism is dead and we're post-racial and we don't need affirmative action because, you know, content of their character, not color of their skin. But there are actual brain capacities, brain functions that are causing people to act upon these racist biases and well, it's, it's not, killing it's not, us. It's
17: not so much that the, uh, that, uh, it's, that it's, causing them to act it's that it's a part of their subconscious yeah. and then they go about and they that's we are, we are affected by these things yeah. these are the uh, a bias is something that happens over time and you, you get it gets impr- imprinted onto your brain uh here is the, the the best part about this like and i i hope that i'm not going to get punched by this my mom had uh three heart attacks at 41 right three heart attacks. And so she has uh, she had triple uh, bypass surgery, all that good stuff. My mom, on occasion, has these issues, and she also my mother's diabetic. Like I, I just need to put all this out there to set up this point. My mom has issues, and she'll say I'm not feeling well because she is a heart condition she had triple bypass she's diabetic there's all types of weird uh uh complications that come along with diabetes right so she'll go in and if you know about diabetes you know certain things you know that people if your blood sugar is high that you are you have a warped uh, like like you're, a fuzzy uh thinking clouded thinking um it's harder just to move you're exhausted you can't really uh, uh get out of it's hard to get out of bed sometimes like it's really bad right so, my mom will go to the doctor about something, like, I'm not feeling well, this, that, and the other. And they will tell her that she's faking. Or, that, uh, she just like, ah, no, no, there's nothing wrong with you. So then, if she needs to take off from work, she can't actually get a doctor's note, because they won't actually acknowledge that she's ill. Mm. And my mom, like, flat out said to me one day, cause I was like, mama, you can't, you can't keep doing it. You gotta, you gotta get these doctors, you can't just force yourself through. And she's like, they don't believe a poor black woman. And that's that. Mm. And I... I, and on my end, I'm like, well, mommy, we got, we got to go to different doctors. We need to, uh, uh, you go to a doctor till you find the right doctor. And I do believe that. But at the same time, she's like, I've gone to three or four doctors, like what, uh, what her insurance allows her, uh, to get, I, and the, and the network of doctors that she's in that all kind of like treat poor black folks like that. Like you're faking, like you're, you're trying to get out of work as opposed to the fact that, Hey, you know what? I'm actually ill. I have a, a like a medic, a medical file full of information about my illness. And yet when I come and tell you, I'm ill, you're like, eh, you just don't want to work. Go to work.
16: That illness is not metaphor. So
18: why do I feel sick when I look at you?
1: There is this illness in me and I need to get it out so when I bleed it's not blood it's a metaphor for love these aren't fates just the beating of my heart this fever isn't real it represents how I feel my pain transformed into art
2: I have been called a lot of different names relating to skin color and I always find it fascinating that most of the time people think that the things that they are saying are a compliment even when I find them to be, like, really offensive. First side this semester, people come to me and, like, try to, like, get at me, I guess
18: you could say, but they would say, like, you're pretty to be dark-skinned, like, you're the first dark-skinned girl I've talked to. Like, and they do that as, as a compliment, but it's really an insult to me as a person. Like, are you saying, compared to a white-skinned girl, I'm not as pretty?
19: And I think when you, when you talk about the experiences of of people of African descent in this country who have been through enslavement and been through all types of Jim Crow ism and, and residential segregation, you know, and school segregation is that it, it plays out within our communities as well.
10: But what names are hard to describe African-Americans?
2: Light skin, dark skin. And then within the light, there's light bright. Light bright. Light bright. Light bright and almost white. Oreo. Monotone. Cracker. Monochrome mulatto octoroon quadroon septum yellow high yellow high yellow
19: probably the most inflammatory that I remember being called piss-colored
18: piss-colored yellow
10: piss-colored yellow actually I thought I was dark skinned until I went down south they called me a red bone down there they said oh you red red bone red
2: bone red bone red, red, bone. Bone. red. yellow bone lacquered food analogies, chocolate, cocoa, chocolate, chocolate, caramel, walnut, white chocolate, cocoa, they had
18: this weird thing in like caramel pops,
2: toffee, coffee is mocha, mocha chocolate, cinnamon, caramel, all that, mahogany, ebony, I mean there's some really beautiful ones. And then of course um, on the darker end of the spectrum there's all the more derogatory Terms like uh, darky, 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 blacky, black, jet black,
19: blue black, blue black,
2: blue black tar baby,
19: burnt, burnt, burnt. crispy,
2: midnight black, boo boo black.
19: The black is night. The black is shit. Specifically, when you talk about the experiences of of black folks, um, of African Americans in this country, although there are some very uh, kind of uniform experiences, there's all types of experiences that are dictated by by color and by hue.
2: I think people of different skin colors definitely get treated differently. In our society, generally, light-skinned girls are considered prettier.
16: Among women, there's this pecking order sometimes.
18: I know dark-skinned girls talk about it all the
2: time. I would get told, you know, you're pretty for a dark girl. Boys make it clear, like, I like light skin girls. So I always was aware of um, being more dark or being on that end of the spectrum, I'll say. Um, as not being something as desirable.
16: If you're lighter, that's a preferable thing.
2: My dark skinned friends
18: always have that issue where they feel like the light skinned friends in the group got the one up on them when we go out, when it's men, you know, looking at you know, the click, like who do I want to talk to? Sometimes they feel like they're overlooked for. Lighter girls. And sometimes they are.
2: I don't discriminate, but you know,
19: I see a lot of light skin, you know. Like they always do their thing, seem like a lot of light-skinned, always get cute and dress up. The light-skinned girls were always the, you know, like the, like the cute girls, right? The cute girls that everyone was trying to holler at. Um, it was acceptable if you were dark-skinned, if you were thick. Well, I definitely love my dark-skinned ladies, too. Then the young brothers would, would be on the, the dark-skinned, you know, thick sisters. The darker you were, the more um, the more objectified you were as a female.
2: I think some of the values that people have around skin color are really crazy.
10: The light skinned guy's the pretty boy. All the girls want him, but then the dudes think that he's soft. The dark skinned dude is cool with all the guys, but the girls don't really want him because they think that he's uglier the darker that he is.
18: People have a thing in their mind that might is more attractive.
10: When I meet with a woman, they just always after the light skinned guy in the group. I approach a female, like, what's up girl? She like, who is that over there?
18: I have seen some ugly mofos that, that dark-skinned girls have drooled over just because they were light-skinned. And I'm looking like, are we looking at the same dude? He is ugly. It
3: used to be that, you know, you'd get more player and you get a job if you were more light-skinned. But you'd also, though, if you weren't black enough, that would also work against you, too. Because sometimes people really wanted someone who was really dark-skinned. Um, to which is their way of saying you're black because if you're
16: light-skinned, you're not necessarily black.
18: Light-skinned black men have like a stereotype of being more militant because like they're overcompensating for not being as black as a dark-skinned man.
16: I always say like my men like like my coffee, which is black. There's that expression, you know, the darker the berries, sweeter the juice. So sometimes that's like a positive thing. A person with really dark skin, the man's gonna be like a really this guy. It's a positive thing, if they're dark.
18: There's like an urban legend that the dark you are, the, the bigger
16: package you have. When it comes to color with the light bright thing or high yellow, sometimes it gives that connotation, this person's better. She thinks she white.
2: You know, it's not even like a name, it's just an expression. She thinks she white. But you get,
18: you know, categorized as having to beast a certain way or having a certain attitude. That
2: must be my mentality, if that's what I look like but I think it also depends on how they present, how they, you know, manifest or carry themselves in the world, and that could have something to do with whatever internalized stuff they have going on, or it could have to do with the ways that color can be currency, how, you know, whatever it is, you know, this ranking or this meaning that's attached to how we look.
3: I'm thinking about my brothers, Um, Ricardo or Richard, very dark, um, beautiful, smart, intelligent, much brighter than I, was told day one, you're not going to mount to anything, look at you, you don't look clean, you know, because of the color of the skin. He's born with that skin color. What does that have to do with his being able to be successful? And I think about how he internalized it all. And he actually spent most of his life in prison. There is something related to color that we have bought as a society across the board that somehow associates Uh, excellence, excellence, associates promise, associates associates possibilities, associates associates, competence, intelligence, intelligence, worthiness worthiness with a lighter lighter you. And somehow the darker you are, the less likely you are to be of any asset or let alone contribution or success in society.
0: My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at com. Thanks so much for your support.
20: See it's not about races, just places, faces, where your blood comes, is where your faces. I seen the bright get colored. I'm not gonna spend my life being a color.
21: Because the essence of white privilege is not having to even think about white privilege. You know, people of color get this, white people don't. And this is why the killing of Michael Brown has struck such a nerve with people of color all across the country. It's brought home, and, and it's why I think the the, the, the the opinion polls are showing that only about 35% of white Americans think that the shooting of Michael Brown is an indication of a racial problem in this country, whereas about 80% of African Americans say, yeah, of course. This has brought home in a very brutal and very personal way, the fears of people of color in this country the, the fears that they live with every day. You know, every mother whose whose son goes off to school every day, day—will I see him alive at the end of the night. I mean, the most powerful of those fears in communities of color in this country, particularly poor communities of color, is that the cops won't hesitate to kill you if they get a chance. That fear is justified. The FBI's own statistics show that black people are disproportionately victims of police shootings. African-Americans make up 12% of our population, 31% of all the victims of police shootings. And when you look at police shootings where the victims were not attacking anybody when they were killed, 39% of them are African-Americans, police shootings. This We live in a society where white privilege infects every relationship, every institution, every decision we make. And which is why the shooting of an unarmed young black man by a white police officer doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's tied into this bigger issue of a racial power structure that continues to control this country 149 years after the abolition of slavery. So instead of blithering about racial agitators and lecturing black Americans about smoking pot, Bill O'Reilly and other white Americans like him should take a good long look at this racial power structure and understand how we speaking as a white guy how we benefit from it and then you know we can say okay now so what do we do about making sure that everybody has that same opportunity an equal society is not gonna happen overnight but the only way that we're gonna move forward particularly given that moving forward is something that is largely in the hands of white people in this country as the numeric majority as the power majority as the financial majority White Americans have to realize how much they continue to profit from racism, both past and present. It's time for white Americans to get real about white privilege.
0: reach the activism portion of today's show now that you're informed and angry here's what you can do about it today's activism changed the entire culture and structural violence against people of color okay I know this is a big one as Katie and I discuss every time I decide to put together a general racism episode there's not exactly a campaign that we can promote to simply end racism. So with the help of Dr. Tricia Rose, let's just drive home some critical points and refocus on what each of us can do in our everyday lives. This is going to be a call and response exercise, so get ready to repeat what you hear out loud. If you're currently on public transportation or otherwise surrounded by strangers, you may be excused. Ready? Okay, repeat what you hear, starting with your name. I, state your name
6: am not personally responsible for racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, or any other vast form of group-based discrimination, even though I very likely benefit from it. Therefore, I should not feel guilty. I might feel sadness. Empathy. Outrage. But guilt won't change anything for the better. And besides, it focuses only on me. I did not choose the body. Sexual orientation, race or class position, and how I came into this world. What I can choose is how I want to behave. And whether or not I want to meaningfully contribute to creating a just society in light of all I'm learning. Okay, two sentences, close it. I can determine how I want to live in this world and what kind of alliances I want to make. So what I do from this day forward defines who I am. And for that, I'm responsible.
15: Hello, my name is Brian Mary Deason from Western New York, and I've been listening to your podcast for quite some time, and uh, I really enjoy it. Actually, many, many years, I really enjoy it. But um, I was listening to episode 656, one on racism and media, and um, the host of The Young Turks made a mention of over-racism, and him and his co-host said that they don't believe many people are overt racist. And then they went through this incredible list of institutions, media, police, um, and others who seem to demonstrate what one might call prejudicial behavior, where they say things which are related to stereotypes associated with black people. Now, being a black man, I can tell you something. What they said is absolutely true. People don't go around and they are not overt racist. They don't use the N-word. That's the one part that they mentioned. You know, they don't say any more, oh, well, this N had it coming in. This N had had, you know, this problem with this, with whatever. But the reality is racism has shifted. And a lot of white liberals do not get that. And they've never gotten it. They've never been able to appreciate the fact that in the 1960s, people did stop saying the N-word. They stopped saying nigger, then they started calling blacks Negroes, because that was more acceptable. The Klan stopped wearing hoods, and they started wearing suits and ties. They went from being the Klan to the White Citizens Council. When that became unpopular in the late 60s, then they switched and they started forming foundations like the John Birch Society, which didn't have the term white in it, but you didn't need the term white in it because what they were spewing was nothing but white supremacist nonsense. When that became too um, controversial, then they just started things like the Heritage Foundation. What I'm saying is this, white liberals do not understand the words that they are speaking when it comes to racism. There is a lot of overt racism if you're black. But white liberals still think that it's the 1960s. And it's not. Conservatives are very, are very overtly racist. And what they say and
20: how they act
15: is very overt. If you're black. If you're a white liberal, you just think that they're, well, they're they're misinformed. You could kind of talk them down. No. The very idea of being conservative in this nation is connected to white supremacy. And white liberals have never gotten that. They've never understood that. The beginning of this nation was founded on white supremacy. And this nation was a very dramatically white supremacist state for almost 200 years. So if people are going to talk about eradicating racism, we can't just sit down and have tea about it. How racism will end is, like Malcolm X said, with a complete transformation of this society. And unfortunately, I don't believe white liberals will, will will, help usher that in, because when push comes to shove, most white liberals are still a little bit privileged. And I don't believe a lot of them are willing to yet give up those privileges. Because they do not see them, even though they are connected to white supremacy, they still enjoy them.
7: Thank you very much, my friend. Keep up the good work. Peace. Hi, this is Jack out of Chicago. There's something your general public doesn't know about police officers. There's three types of police officers. Deadly do rights. These are the ones that are altruistic, that really want to change the world. They never make it past a passive probationary period. The first time they... Whistleblow blow on something they get knocked off that's the reason why they have an 18-month probation period not just to root out the bad cops they root out the cops that are too good second type of police officer you have is, is just a working guy takes it as a job puts his nose to the grindstone just wants to get through the days provide for his family the third type of cop is the troublesome cop these are the ones that And they become a cop because they like to exert power over other people. And these are the ones that cause the most trouble, the most issues. But they're covered up by other cops because of a system that's going to be called Mutually Assured Destruction. One of the first things you need to do if you want to be a career cop is to collect blackmail on your fellow cops. It could be really simple. It could be a video of hookers at a bachelor party. It could be um, just documenting every time a cop makes a mistake, writing down the witness, the, the, the suspect's name. It could be anything like that. Something that's good enough to get a, a police officer fired and then not telling anyone about it. Uh, later down the road, when you need help, you go to the right and you just say, "Hey, listen, if you fire me for this." I'm bringing down half the chain of command with you because I got all this evidence about all this other stuff. And next thing you know, the wagons start circling around to protect this bad cop because he has enough evidence on all the other cops that forces them to protect him, even though they don't like him. And because of this system of good cops, ethical cops being rooted out too quickly and, and working cops who just want any trouble, you have cops, the bad cops pretty much uh, own the roost, and this blackmail that they accumulate is not just for job protection, it could be used for enhancing their own career, that's why it's the bad cops that end up getting promoted to sergeant, lieutenant, assistant chief, even chief. You think the chief is the most powerful guy inside the police department? He really isn't. Because if he blows up through the ranks in that police department to become chief, chances are every lieutenant, every sergeant has tons of blackmail on that guy. So he can't fire anyone without risking his own job and his own pension. And that's a lot of reasons why when the police department is looking for a new police chief, they reach out, they don't promote from within. They reach out and they get a new guy from somewhere else because they know that guy, you know is clean, or or at least knowing that local police department has any crap on him. So this is the reason why police departments are inherently corrupt. Number one, the altruistic cops, the good cops that deadly do rights, we they're weed out within eighteen months. The working cops are too afraid of losing their jobs to blow the whistle because they saw what happened to the ethical cops. And the bad cops pretty much just run the place and end up getting promoted. That's how it works. And there's nothing we can do about it. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's
20: Colin from Cleveland. Just finally got a chance to listen to the last episode. Excellent, by the way. Professor Rambo's comment. Hey, what's up, Jay? This is Professor Rambo from Georgia, man. He did a great job taking it on, discussing the merits of it point by point. However, his opening statement was pretty much just glazed right over when he said he's got a new term for feminism called bullying. I don't know. I guess my new word for feminism after today would be bullyism. Professor Rambo, no disrespect intended, but you have to realize you're going to call a group that uh, you're going to call them bullies that are, you know, maybe they're trying to bully themselves into getting equal pay or bullying themselves on not being allowed to be objectified as they walk down the street and Professor Rambo, I'm in construction. I've worked with many, many, many colleagues of mine who objectify every woman who walks past. Any attractive woman they will wolf whistle or, you know, cat call. Any unattractive woman in their eyes, they will criticize. And it's just, it's disgusting that you're going to sit here and say that, you know, women who are basically subjugated to still as a form of second-class citizens, that you have the audacity to call them bullied. You need to really rethink these things before you speak. Jay, thanks for the show.
22: Hi, this is Al from Seattle, and I was actually just calling in hopes that you could address a subject, uh, domestic violence. Considering everything that's happening in the news, it's rather disappointing to see how easy it is to be a victim of domestic violence and to also be victimized by everybody else. I recently lost my sister to domestic violence, and we will never be able to get her back. And in her name, I will always forever stand for anybody uh, who needs to get away from a situation. And it's something that we need to address as a community. It is really hard on a woman who has experienced it. And they feel this unbelievable pull to still stay because, no, they love me and know it's going to be okay. And this can happen to men and and women. And so how do we as a community, as a society, help lift up our brothers and sisters to say, no, you do not have to take violence and you can grow and be okay without this person who is not caring for you in the way that they need to. And it's an honest question. I'd love to hear it from anybody else to please give me a suggestion. How can I stop this? The next time I am in a situation and I have a friend in front of me, man or woman, uh, who is going through something, I, I'm at a loss for how I can properly form my words or what analogies I can use to help them understand how important they as a person are. Um, I greatly appreciate your show and thank you so much for everything you do. and. You get all the reviews in the world. You are the best podcast I've heard in a very long time. Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So a quick sort of follow-up on the previous episode's discussion of domestic violence. There was a sort of a long discussion with Professor Rambo who called in about the Ray and Janae Rice domestic violence uh, situation that went very public recently. And so the follow-up is that, you know, he and I continued the conversation a bit via Twitter. And I, I believe I made decent progress in convincing him that his response to the situation was, uh, you know, not helpful at best, and you know, really horrible and destructive at worst. So, skipping ahead, assuming you know, I, I made that progress; it, it feels like I did. Uh, he, he seemed to still be left with you know a couple of questions, and giving him all the benefits of the doubt and assuming no uh, victim blaming uh, intentions at all. You know, the basic question is: okay, so as a person who wants to reduce or eliminate domestic violence, then how do we react to a situation like this? You know, if, uh, if what happened in the media was damaging and the, you know, the, the victim in the situation said that, you know, it wasn't helping and they, she didn't seem to be asking for help, then, you know, what, what are we to do? And my response to him is, uh, you know, what I'll say to all of you, Which is, you know, if you are not sure how to respond, first of all, you can start by keeping your mouth shut and your ears opened and looking to learn something. Because if there's any chance that your reaction to a situation, especially one as delicate as a domestic violence situation, is not going to be the right one, well, then you'd really better just not say anything and try to learn from someone who really knows what they're talking about and follow their lead. Which sort of brings us to the final question that we heard in uh, the voicemails on today's episode asking, you know, very genuinely, how do we deal with domestic violence when it's happening in our own lives? If we're trying to insert ourselves into other people's situations and sort of make ourselves available to be helpful, uh, you know, and convince people that they need help and so on, how do we do that? Well, the answer is the same. We need an expert. This is not the sort of subject that we can just blithely and lightly discuss and, you know, muse about. Like, we actually need people who know the answer. We don't just need to speculate. So, You know, I will uh, re-up that question from the listener. If you are that expert and would like to chime in on the best ways to either respond to uh, domestic violence situations as they break out in the media, you know, what is the best way to be helpful as as an ally in that case? Or when it's happening to someone you know in your personal life, how is it best to make yourself helpful in that situation? The number, again, 202-999-3991. Uh, now, before I go, just a quick programming note. It's, I mean, it's sort of a big programming note and also not that big of a deal, and you'll hardly notice a change. But for the first time in almost five years, I am going to be changing permanently the schedule of the show. Uh, for, for almost five years, I've been doing the show every third day, and that was fine for a really long time. I didn't mind not having weekends at the same time as everyone else. You know, it, it was a good schedule. It fit. It was sustainable for a long time. But over time, I've sort of realized that the lack of normal weekends can be tough. Uh, so it would be nice to have those back. And I mean, the labor movement went to all that work and effort to get me those weekends. So, you know, I don't want to like spit in their face about it. So maybe if I actually maintain those weekends for myself, that would work out well. But then also, I realized that so slowly at a, a, a almost geologic rate uh my workload has been increasing but so slowly i didn't notice so what was a sustainable schedule of 10 episodes a month uh you know 5 years ago is now like an exhausting schedule today just because of, you know you know an extra project here a few extra hours of work each day to make an episode there and so on and so on. And I just realized like, oh, this is getting a little bit out of control. I need to bring it back down to a, a you know, again, sustainable rate. So the new schedule, really easy. Tuesdays and Fridays, uh, you know, I'll be posting in the evening. So it'll be like, you know, you'll get it Wednesday morning or you can listen over the weekend or save it over the weekend for the Monday drive. Or maybe you save them up for weeks at a time and then binge through them anyways. So it doesn't really matter. But that's the new schedule, and and so the only difference is instead of ten episodes a, uh, a month, it'll be like eight and a half episodes a month. You'll hardly notice, I promise. But uh, but also, I promise, I will notice, and it'll be a, a gigantic improvement to my life. So if that seems like a fair trade off to you, then we're all set to go. So you didn't know it, but this week was the first week of that schedule. There was a show on Tuesday. Today is Friday. There's a show today. And now three days are going to go by. And I'll just see you again on next Tuesday. And we'll go along on that pattern. Good times will be had by all. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, We're making such excellent progress. Uh, if, If we could get, like, 500 more reviews on iTunes in the next week or so, Uh, you know, I I think the release date of iOS 8 is coming out soon. That was the big date that we're trying to get, you know, a a big drive of reviews in before that happened. So we're in the last week right now, uh, five-star reviews on iTunes, also on Stitcher. Please make that happen if you have like three minutes to spare. Stay tuned into the show also by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
1: And it's a crying shame How we get so trained